Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of What's the Matter? I'm your host, Ringang Shell. Today's episode is about depression. So, let's get started. <clears throat> What's the human brain? Modern neuroscience has established a link. A pulpy mass of cells and fibers. I see the meaning of the universe. Is the center of the network of fibers <laughs> that make up man's nervous system. I feel like I can float and stuff sometimes. Extending upward into the skull. It's basically an earthquake within the body. The brain. What's the matter? According to CanMats, which is the Canadian Network for Mood and Anxiety Treatment, the annual prevalence for depression is about 5% in Canada. Lifetime prevalence for depression is about 11% in Canada. So that means 1 in 10 Canadians will suffer from depression in their lifetime. And surprisingly, according to the World Health Organization, that number increases substantially in high-income countries, such as Belgium, where the lifetime prevalence of depression is 14.1%, France, where it's 21%, Netherlands, 17.9%, New Zealand, 17.8%, and the United States, where it's 19.1%. Yeah, I think, I think it is a lot of people. I think it's a significant illness that, you know, deserves attention, you know, the way that other illnesses do too. Um, you know, as I think we talked about earlier... There's... My name is June Lam, and I am a psychiatry resident at the University of Toronto. I am in my fourth year of training to become a psychiatrist um, out of five years, and it's, it's a privilege to be here. I'm currently based out of Mount Sinai Hospital, although we rotate to different hospitals every few months. So by that standard or by that statistic, we probably know somebody in our family who is suffering from depression or at least somebody in our life. Definitely. I think I would venture to say everybody knows someone who's affected by depression, whether they know it or not. Um, I think that depression, as with um, many of the psychiatric illnesses or mental health disorders, a lot of, a lot of these illnesses affect people and and not everybody knows it. It's not as obvious as, you know, breaking an arm or breaking a leg. And so that contributes to the stigma. And so I, I think everybody knows someone affected by depression, even if they don't know it. So let's begin with the simplest question, all right? What is depression? It seems like such a, an easy question to answer, but I actually find it a challenging question. Because I think a lot of people colloquially use the term, you know, I'm depressed, or I think what most people mean is that I'm sad. You know, all humans, everybody gets sad sometimes. I think depression or clinical depression or, you know, I'm going to, you're going to hear me say a lot, major depressive disorder is when your low mood or your sadness lasts most days and lasts for weeks to months or even longer and you can't seem to get out of this low mood and it also affects your ability to enjoy things in life and it affects your quality of life and your ability to do things like go to work or hang out with friends and family. I think that, to me, is clinical depression. And there's different forms of depression then, right? So, there is something called dysthymia, which we now call persistent depressive disorder. So the idea is that 
instead of having this episode of depression usually triggered by something that is sort of puts you in a very low mood and sort of lasts weeks to months, dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder is not as low. It's almost like if clinical depression is a minus 10, then dysthymia is like a minus five. But you're at a minus five for years and years and years from when you're a teenager or even younger to an adult and beyond. Um, and so some people are actually affected by dysthymia. Now there's also something called uh, major depressive disorder, right? Yes. Does right. That, is that like the, the worst case scenario of depression you can have? So major depressive disorder is sort of, I think, what people classically think of as sort of clinical depression. But there are gradations of severity in, in depression. So even if you qualify for a major depressive disorder based on this diagnostic criteria that we'll talk about, you can still have mild to moderate depression or moderate to severe or severe depression. I tend to think of severe depression as the type of depression where your life really is impaired. So classically, I've, I've met people who can't get out of bed in the, in the morning um, or actually don't leave their bed at all during the day. They're no longer able to work because they can't concentrate, because um, they need to sleep all day, because they're anxious and worried about things all the time. They can't have meaningful relationships. So um, major depressive disorder is just a name for clinical depression, but there's still sort of different severities. And the other thing I would say um, is sometimes with really bad depression or severe depression, you can get what's called psychotic features or psychosis. So, so psychosis is when you hear or hallucinate things that aren't really there. You might even have thoughts or beliefs that are called delusions, where things you believe may not be true or may be different than most people's reality. This may cause you to suffer thought disorders and may lead you to say things in an incoherent or disorganized way. And when you have severe depression, sometimes you can get psychosis with it. And I would say that that's quite distressing. That might actually give people a misunderstanding of what depression is like if someone is psychotic they might not think it's part of depression but it might be related to it yes exactly i think if you have uh, psychosis people might not think that it's part of depression the other thing to think about for people who have clinical depression or major depressive disorder is that um to think about whether that person may, may also have bipolar disorder right which is you know um where some sometimes in that person's life the person who has bipolar disorder they get depressed um, and they have low mood and, and the symptoms associated with that. And then at other times in their life, they might get what we call a hypomanic or a manic episode, which is kind of like the opposite of a low low, which is like a high high. So sometimes people who are hypomanic or manic feel sort of too happy or really, really happy, or they might feel really irritable and snappy. And then they don't need to sleep and they have so much energy and you know, their friends and their family notice that it's actually different than their personality because they're like talking nonstop, they're going from topic to topic, they're a bit sort of what we call grandiose, which is like they feel like they're on top of the world, they might even have some psychotic features again, some beliefs, for example, that they're like superhuman or that they're certain religious figures, for example. Um, and so when someone's depressed, uh, we want to think about psychosis because people can have that, and we also want to think about whether that person might have bipolar disorder because it changes the way we would treat someone. It's like a life roller coaster to just go up yeah. and then all of a sudden they'll go down. Exactly, exactly, exactly right. So I think bipolar disorder is like a like an up and down roller coaster. Like how the highs are really high and then the lows are really low. And, but treatable. But treatable, yes. Mm. We will come to treatments of depression afterwards for sure. Now, so 
When I was in med school, we had this mnemonic, Siggy Caps. Right. So that helped us remember the symptoms of depression. Could you tell us what some of the main symptoms of, uh, or some of the most obvious symptoms of depression are? Siggy Caps is, I think, a, a great way to remember uh, some of the depressive symptoms, at least according to the DSM. Um, so the DSM is the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual. The fifth version, mm-hmm. yes, the most recent version is the fifth version. And it's a way to classify um, ways to identify diagnoses in psychiatric disorders. So for depression, we talk about how someone has to have a low mood or um, a decreased or lower pleasure um, from the activities, like decreased pleasure from activities they normally enjoy doing. So either low mood or decreased pleasure um, for at least two weeks, most of those days for most of the time. And then they have to have five of the nine symptoms. So those are the MCG caps. Um, those are the nine symptoms. So you have to have five of them. M is for mood, usually low mood. S is for sleep, too much sleep or too little sleep. I is for interest usually diminished interest in pleasurable activities. G is for guilt, excessive or inappropriate guilt, feeling of worthlessness. E is for energy, loss of energy or fatigue. C is for concentration. A is for appetite, decreased or increased appetite, which leads to weight loss or weight gain. P is for psychomotor agitation, which usually means a general slowing of the entire body. S is for suicide, recurrent thoughts of death, or suicidal ideations, or suicide attempts. Now, for these symptoms, you said there's five you have to have to be clinically diagnosed with depression. Yes. Now, you can have any of the five. Yes. Or, uh, and does the, the suicide have to be one of them or no? So suicide does not have to be one of them. Um, and that's an important thing to clarify. It is um, any five of those nine that we just talked about. And that's an important point because it points to the idea that in psychiatry, most of our uh, illnesses or disorders are based on symptoms. And so um, it can be argued that actually if you have five of those nine symptoms and I have a different five or sort of mostly different five of those nine symptoms, then maybe we actually have different types of depression. Um, And so the science or the medicine is not to the point where we can actually differentiate if you and I have different symptoms of those nine, but we just call both of them depression. If you can have any five of the nine and you would still qualify for clinical depression. Now, what if someone comes in and says, I have four of those nine? I think it's very case by case. I think... The DSM diagnosis is important because it is the way that we classify our our diagnoses in psychiatry currently. And the ICD is another diagnostic manual that that other countries use. It is important. At the same time, I think for me, whether a depression is sort of quote-unquote real or clinical or a major depressive disorder, I draw the line less on whether you have four or seven symptoms and more on Uh, whether those symptoms are affecting your life, and if so, how are they affecting your life? I think if you have those symptoms and you have four of them, or one of them is suicidal ideation, for example, or suicidal thinking, 
then, you know, whether you have four or five, first of all, I think it's subjective anyway. And I think if you don't meet all five of the nine, I would still say if it's affecting your life, then it's worth treating. And if you only have four of the nine, I think it's, I think it's more of a philosophical debate. And like you said, I think it is a case by case basis. There comes a time when the blank, the blankness of future is so extreme, it is such a black wall of nothingness, N not even of bad things. It's not like it's a cave full of monsters that you're afraid of entering the future. It is just nothingness. Le néant, as the French would say, la vide, the, the void, the emptiness. That's the voice of Stephen Fry, who is an English comedian, actor, writer, presenter, and activist and also suffers from depression and bipolar disorder. It came as quite a shock to me to realize that the feelings of suicidal thoughts that I had were actually rare, and that these, these were not the norm. Many other feelings I had were perfectly normal, but the feeling of wishing my life would end and trying to do something about it, which I did from, I guess, 17, 18, a few times, that I discovered was not usual, and, and I suppose that is as good a time to date it from as any other. It's horrible to contemplate uh, a futureless future, if that isn't too impossible. Um, and so you just want to, to step out of it, to step out of a, the, the, the whole race, the whole business. The, the monstrosity of being alive overwhelms you. For the last few days, I've been feeling increasingly depressed. Usually when I feel like this, I hide away. I can't this time. For me, that numbing kind of depression comes three to four times a year and lasts a week to ten days. I spend the time in the house, staring at the ceiling. Mood to me is like weather. If it's raining, it's no good saying it isn't raining. It is real, you know? That water is actually falling from the sky. It can take you by surprise because it can happen in a, in a sort of crossover, a transitional phase of moods when you're actually quite up and you, don't, you can't really make sense of it because it's as if the clouds are coming in, but you feel good. So you think, well, this is really weird. Well, what's that about? And then, and then, you know, and it might be two days later that it's just got heavier and heavier. And then just occasionally, it's the usual thing of, uh, you know, you're sort of saying, I know I shouldn't, and they go, why do you say shouldn't? The thing that keeps one living is a sense of future, that there will be a tomorrow, and tomorrow I've got to do this, and then the day after I've got to do that. Not that any of these things have a particular logical purpose or a convincing reason to exist, but they somehow keep one going. In, in the words of Dorothy Parker, a, 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 a great um, wit and writer and poet, um, you might as well live, was her poem that she wrote. Now, my other question is, how do you differentiate depression as a psychiatric issue from other medical conditions? Like, how do you know that depression is not caused by, you know, uh, hormonal deficiencies or vitamin deficiency or um, something else? I think uh, when, we, when we consult, when we see patients with depression, uh, usually uh, they have a family doctor who referred them to us or 
um, or maybe we see them in the emergency department or as a, as a patient who's been admitted to the hospital. And when we think about depression, uh, one of the things we think about is are there uh, medical reasons for the depressive symptoms? Because uh, as we listed those symptoms, some of them including like having low energy, poor concentration, poor appetite, um, sleep disturbances, sleep disturbances um, all of those things. For example, if you're admitted to hospital and you have you know, a cancer diagnosis, for example, all of those things can be affected, mm -hmm. but it doesn't warrant a diagnosis of depression. So it's almost a corollary to what you just asked previously. You know, even if you have you know, five of those nine symptoms, if there's a better reason to explain them, like a medical reason, or because one of your loved ones died, for example, um, then they may not qualify for a diagnosis of depression, even if they sort of quote unquote meet criteria. So uh, to answer your question, if they come up with depression, um, uh, sort of query depression or wondering whether they have depression, I would always recommend to the family doctor that we look at things like whether they're anemic or have sort of low red blood cells, uh, because that can affect mood. We look at whether they have an infection because that can affect people's mood. Like for example, when I have a f the flu, I have you know four to five of those nine symptoms automatically. We look at um, things like thyroid, as you mentioned, like uh, hormonal conditions, uh, vitamin deficiencies like vitamin D, folate, B12, those kinds of things. Um, and then other things too that might cause depression or depressive symptoms rather to make sure that we're not missing something medical. And like you specified, the DSM does have that specific stipulation saying that you have to make sure to root out that other medical criteria in order to be included in the diagnosis of depression. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think you have to rule out better explanatory models or right. ways of explaining the Not caused by other medical conditions. Exactly. I know it's not a, um, it's still a debated topic, but what is the cause of depression? Um, maybe it's worth talking about a few theories about sure. the day. Sure. I think the one that sort of is the most talked about in sort of more current history is the monoamine hypothesis. Um, so the monoamine hypothesis of depression is the idea that there are certain brain chemicals that are lacking or deficient in certain parts of our brains and that predisposes you or causes depression. And so those neurotransmitters or brain chemicals include serotonin, which I'm sure most people will have heard about, dopamine and norepinephrine or noradrenaline. So these are the brain chemicals that are thought to be low for some people who have depression. Now this theory is quite simplistic in my opinion and in other people's opinion. And so the real answer is what you alluded to earlier, which is that there's like no real, like we still don't fully know the causes of depression. If I may go into some other theories, one of, one of the other theories is uh, related to your circadian rhythm. So this is like your biological clock that tells you, what, you know, when to sleep and when to wake up. Um, for some people with depression and mood disorders in general, so including depression and bipolar disorder, when people's sleep cycles are affected, um, it can precipitate or lead to a depressive episode or a manic episode like we talked about earlier with bipolar disorder. So there's a theory that sleep is very much related to mood, um, not only as one of the symptoms of depression, but as a cause of depression. And so part of some medications, um, which are not available in Canada, um, target the melatonin receptor, for example, which is a receptor indicated in the sleep-wake cycle or the circadian rhythm. And for people who have bipolar disorder, 
having a regular sleep schedule, so sleeping at the same time, having eight hours of sleep, waking up at the same time every day as much as possible is a very important way of preventing a hypomanic or a manic episode to happen. And so there is some good evidence that sleep and mood are very much related. The other thing if I can say as well, uh, as I just go on and on here, is the more recent theory, which I'm also excited about, is the inflammation theory of depression. So it's still very vague and a lot of research is being done in this field, but it's the idea that for some people, depression is related to and maybe caused by an inflammatory process. Um, So sometimes uh, that can be related to the gut inflammation. So people with Crohn's disease or or ulcerative colitis have a higher incidence of depression. Um, And that may be related to their inflammation process. There are some people with depression and bipolar disorder who have an elevated uh, C-reactive protein, which is this protein in the blood that is uh, high or elevated when there's an inflammatory process. And there's some evidence that some medications to decrease inflammation actually treats depression in some people. And so that's another more recent uh, sort of biological theory of depression that has been sort of talked about and, and is actively being researched. I think these biological Uh, theories of depression are very important and very valid and at the same time even if you're predisposed to having depression because of inflammatory processes or because of low brain chemicals it still usually takes what we call like a precipitating event or like a like a first event that triggers a depressive episode and usually that's psychosocial meaning it's a stressor usually like classically it's like the death of a loved one for example and so you could have all these brain chemical changes in your brain, you could have inflammation, but you don't get depression usually until something happens. There are some people who actually, there's no event that's obvious. There's no loss in their life. There's no stress, no new job, no, no stress that's obvious, and they still get depression. I would argue though, it brings us back to the point we talked about earlier, which is that it hints to different types of depression. So right. for example, the person who has depression, but with no obvious trigger or stressor, probably has a different depression than the person who has depression after um, a diagnosis of cancer or a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, for example. So I I think it's important to keep in mind that stressors or things that stress people out can be a precipitating event even if your brain was predisposed to having depression in the first place. So are there any more theories you uh, wanted to tell us about June? Yes, there are. Thank you for asking. Um, We've talked a bit about the biological theories, and it's not an exhaustive list, but I think it's it's maybe helpful just to highlight some of those theories. I wanted to make sure that I mentioned um, the more psychosocial um, theories behind depression, because in psychiatry, at least at the University of Toronto, we get taught a lot about the biopsychosocial model of really any psychiatric disorder and including depression. And why I think that's important is because I think when it comes to depression, because it's such a heterogeneous illness, as we talked about uh, a couple times already, I think it's important to point out that for different people, depression 
can be caused by different things. And it's not just the biological. So yes, some people may be genetically predisposed um, to depression based on some of those theories we talked about, and including um, you know, having a family history of people who have depression and bipolar disorder in their families, that also increases your risk of developing depression. In addition to having biological causes of depression, there are also a lot of psychosocial causes. So um, the idea that in early life, if you've had childhood adversity, childhood trauma, so uh, that could be anything from a diagnosis of, of cancer, even if you've recovered from it, that maybe have stopped your development as a younger person um, or sort of halted your development as a younger person. It could include trauma like, you know, child physical abuse or sexual abuse or other traumatic events like car accidents early in your life can predispose you to having uh, depression later on. And I think that is important uh, in terms of treatment, as we'll talk about later. And the other sort of domain to consider in depression is the social domain. So the idea that there are a lot of social determinants of health, which at the University of Toronto we talk about very regularly, that is not the person's fault, but which predispose you to having depression as well. Things like having unstable housing, for example, having a low social economic status, um, having um, a lack of social support, uh, lack of a spouse or a partner, those types of things can also predispose you. But that they also harken back to the same thing you said. They, it leads to stress, right? It leads to Ex- some point exactly. in time where something is triggering it. Yeah, exactly right. So, and other things like um, being a minority, you know, whether it's racial, sexual, or other type of minority, again, it's not the person's fault at all, but it does predispose that person to feeling marginalized, oppressed, and therefore, exactly as you said, predisposes that person to experiencing stress. And it's important to say, I think, in addition to the biological factors we talked about. Uh, any other theories that you... Uh... I mean, there are many more, right. I think. But these are, the, these are the main ones that... These are the are... main ones, yeah. There are, there are I think, actively, um, a lot of researchers are looking for specific genetic links to depression. Uh, right now, there are, there are some genes that are implicated in depression, but there's no gene that explains depression for everybody, for all that 11% of people completely. Not yet, anyway. Now, is it true, I hear this a lot, is it true that people who live in the northern hemisphere who don't get enough sunlight are more prone to being depressed than people who live close to the equator? The idea of light, it relates to what we talked about in terms of the circadian rhythm or the sleep-wake cycle. So our sleep-wake cycle is determined by how much light our retina in our eyes and our brain then gets. Um, The light that we have in our environment is what tells our brain how to regulate our sleep-wake cycle. And so I think the idea is that in uh, certain parts of the world, including certain parts of Canada, um, or many parts of Canada, we don't don't get as much light, obviously, in the wintertime. And that that decreased light affects our our sleep-wake cycle, affects our circadian rhythm, and therefore can predispose people to depression. Um, actually, it leads to a, a type of depressive disorder or depression that we didn't talk about. Seasonal affective disorder? Right, yes. um, which has the unfortunate or fortunate acronym of SAD. Work is awful. Everyone's snippy and tense. Well, the lack of sun makes people depressed. It's called seasonal affective disorder. Oh, is that where the word sad comes from? What? You think sad is an acronym invented by psychologists? So first of all, seasonal affective disorder, um, for those who may not be familiar, is 
you know, having having some of uh, similar depressive symptoms, but usually it only happens in the winter time again because there's less light, and so sometimes people call it the winter blues.、Mm. And one of the first treatments you would try for seasonal affective disorder, because it's related to a light or a lack of light problem, is something called a sad lamp or It's actually a high-intensity light box, usually a ten thousand lux light box, and you turn it on every morning after you wake up.、Uh, you can do it while you eat breakfast or just as soon as you wake up. Put it at a desk next to you. Don't stare directly at it because that can burn your retinas. So don't stare directly at it, but have it sort of next to you where the light can get into your eyes. And、uh, you wake up, you turn it on. And after thirty minutes to an hour of that every morning, it actually there's good evidence that for seasonal affective disorder, it treats it, makes it better. Very nice. I did not know that seasonal affective disorder should not be taken lightly. <laughs> Amazing. Right, so I wanted to ask you some questions about treatment.、Mm-hmm. Now, I know you said all these theories about、um, depression and how it could be caused, but the majority of the pharmacological treatments for depression are based on the theory of neurotransmitters. Correct? Yes, I think I think you're right.、Um, I would just say, what would I just say? I would say, for any patient that I think has major depressive disorder. Um, or clinical depression, I would start with actually the more basic things, for lack of a better word. So, because sleep is so important, I talk about sleep hygiene, which is basic things that people can do to make sure they fall asleep on time, or you know, at the same time as much as possible every day, including weekends, and wake up at the same time every day, and make sure they get eight hours of sleep. So, because sleep is so important in mood, I always counsel people about. Getting good sleep and the same amount of sleep every day as much as possible.、Um, another thing I talk about is exercise.、Uh, physical exercise is actually shown from the evidence to be one of the best treatments for mild to moderate depression. It's one of the best because I think there are many physical as well as mental benefits, and there are minimal side effects. And so I counsel every one of my patients who has depression to exercise. It's not easy when if you have trouble getting out of bed to exercise. So it depends on whether the person feels like they can engage in that. But for mild and moderate depression, certainly exercise is very important. I also talk a lot about social engagement. So the idea that when you're depressed, a lot of people will talk about not wanting to be with friends or family、um, because of the way they think about themselves or because they're so tired. And I encourage people as much as possible to engage in social activities. So going out with friends anyway, going out with family anyway, and or engaging in things like going to church if they have a faith-based community that is important to them. The more things they do socially, the better they will feel. And that's actually part of something we'll talk about later, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a type of treatment for depression. So those are some of the main things I always always talk about. Um, because I think they are important and useful and effective in treating any kind of depression. Now these are called lifestyle choices. Yes,、yeah. I think lifestyle、uh, plans or treatment plans. So that's one sort of category.、Um, another category is medication. I guess we can talk about medication. Currently, our medications are exactly as you said, 
based around the monoamine hypothesis. Uh, a few different classes of medications that usually physicians or doctors will prescribe to treat depression. So including SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain. Prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance. You just shouldn't have to feel this way anymore. Uh, so that works theoretically by blocking the reuptake or the reabsorption of serotonin back into the neurons or the nerve cells, um, meaning that there's more serotonin in the brain to, to work, basically, um, for, for lack of a better explanation. So SSRIs um, work by increasing the amount of serotonin, and that is directly in response to the theory that we talked about earlier, which is that there isn't enough serotonin in the brain. Now, this theory and this treatment actually is not perfect from a biological explanatory model, because if the issue is that there isn't enough serotonin in the brain, then by blocking the reuptake of serotonin, antidepressants should work right away. But they don't. Antidepressants usually take two to four weeks for some of the effects, and then six to eight weeks for the maximum effect once you find the right dose. So the, the fact that it takes that long for an antidepressant or an SSRI to work suggests that it's not just an issue of not enough serotonin, but there needs to be some brain changes that take at least six to eight weeks, or at least two to four weeks, in order for the brain to readjust to the increased serotonin in the brain, and therefore lead to improvement in the symptoms of depression. That actually leads to, before I forget, a theory that I didn't talk about, um, which I actually don't have as much familiarity with, which is the idea of neuroplasticity. So there's a lot of research around the idea that people with depression or major depressive disorder have um, parts of their brain that are smaller and less neuroplastic. So that the neurons or the nerve cells are less developed in certain parts of the brain of people with depression. And so there's some evidence that SSRIs and other antidepressants and even cognitive behavioral therapy works partly by increasing the neuroplasticity or changing the way that neurons in the brain connect to other neurons. And that's one theory of how depression works and how treatment for depression works. It takes a long time for SSRIs to work somewhere from like two to six weeks. We also have to be careful when we use SSRIs because if a patient is very depressed in a vegetative state mm -hmm. and they start taking medication, there's a window period in the middle that is dangerous and some people say we have to be extra careful when people are on pharmacological medication because they can get enough interest or enough uh, energy to actually go on and commit the act of suicide at that point. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a little more controversial. So I may, I'll tell you what I think based on reading the literature and based on my training so far and my experience treating people who are depressed. I would say that what you're saying is important. I'm not going to, unless you want me to, I'm not going to go into all the side effects of the antidepressants because I think that if you decide to start treatment, I think it's very courageous and I strongly recommend and encourage people to seek treatment, even if it's not antidepressants. I, I personally don't necessarily believe that every depression needs to be treated with a medication. I, I really don't believe that, actually. I think it, it depends on what the causes are. I don't believe everybody should use a medication, but for those people who think it would be beneficial for them, 
you should talk to your doctor about it. I'm not going to go over all of the side effects, but one of the important side effects that you're talking about and that's important to highlight is that for people who have suicidal thoughts, we are taught in psychiatry that if you give someone an antidepressant, including SSRIs, that in the first two to four weeks, the symptoms that improve in those two to four weeks are usually things like what we call the neurovegetative symptoms. So energy, sleep, appetite, um, and not so much the mood or the hopelessness. So in theory, if you have more energy and you can get out of bed and you can do more things, but your mood is still low, you're still feeling hopeless and you're still suicidal or have suicidal thoughts, then in theory, you can have more energy to engage in suicidal behavior um, and hurt yourself. Um, I think that is something that we're taught and that is something we share with patients and clients. I would say... For me, the other thing that I always warn my patients about is that for people who have bipolar disorder, you may not know that you have bipolar disorder. Nobody may know that you have bipolar disorder. And in the first few weeks to months, or maybe even later, when you're on an antidepressant and you have bipolar disorder, but you don't know it yet, the antidepressant can boost your mood too too much and you can end up having a manic or a hypomanic episode. And that's important to you know uh, warn your listeners about as well. And so that you and, and your loved ones will watch for that. But going back to your question about suicidal thoughts, the other thing I would say is that there is a Health Canada advisory. Um, So Health Canada regulates our medications, which mandates all doctors to tell their patients that antidepressants as a class of medications has a risk of increasing suicidal thoughts and suicidal behavior, exactly as you said, in the in the mid midterm, so from two to eight weeks or so. In the long term, it should decrease your risk. But in the short term, in that window period, it can increase your risk. But the data is actually controversial in the sense that there's some good literature, some good studies to suggest that uh, antidepressants don't actually increase suicidal behavior. Um, and they don't create suicidal thoughts out of nowhere. But if you already have suicidal thoughts, they can increase the intensity and the frequency of those thoughts. But there's no evidence to show that increasing those thoughts leads to actually harming yourself or attempting suicide. This data is even more controversial in young people. So the Health Canada Advisory is specifically, I believe, specifically for people aged 25 years and younger. So especially for teenagers, we always have to warn teenagers who are being started on an antidepressant of the risk of increase in suicidal thoughts and suicidal behavior. Um, in the adult population, I do talk about increase in suicidal thoughts and to make sure they tell me if they're experiencing that. I'm pretty convinced that the evidence suggests there's no increase in suicidal behavior for people over 25. You, you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. Could you explain uh, a little bit what that is? So cognitive behavioral therapy is the idea that a person's mood is affected and affects a person's behavior and their thoughts. So what we call the cognitive triad. So mood, behavior, thoughts. And one domain affects the other. So mood affects behavior, behavior affects thoughts, thoughts affect both behavior and mood and, you know, all the permutations of that. I would say, when I explain cognitive behavioral therapy to to my uh, patients, I always call it a diamond. Because in addition to mood and thoughts and 
behavior affecting each other, I also include physical sensations. So, as an example, if someone's mood is sadness or depressed, their behavior could be they don't get out of bed, they don't talk to their friends, they don't go out, and their thoughts could be I'm worthless, nobody wants to hang out with me, I'm not worth spending time with. And their physical sensation can be fatigue, such low energy. And maybe it's helpful to talk about another mood because CBT is used for other things as well. So for example, if you're anxious, if your mood is anxious and you're worried about things um, and, and it affects your functioning, so your mood is anxious, your behavior could be avoiding social situations, for example, a party that makes you anxious. Your thoughts could be everybody's staring at me they think I'm ugly or they think I'm not smart or they think I'm boring. Those could be some of your thoughts if you're anxious in a social situation. And your physical sensations can be palpitations, so your heart going fast, queasiness or nausea, you know, feeling breathless or out of breath. And so the idea is that in CBT, if you can change any one of those four corners, it'll affect all of the other corners. So for depression, if you want to work on um, your behavior. So the behavior is not getting out of bed, not hanging out with your friends. So then part of the behavioral changes would be get yourself out of bed, go out and hang out with friends, go to church, go to, go to whatever social activity that you're avoiding. You can work on the thoughts. So you think you're worthless. The cognitive part of CBT is challenging those thoughts. So I'm worthless. What's the evidence that you're worthless? You know, and you could list a few things there that make you think that you're worthless. And then you list things that suggest that you're not worthless. And then the idea is that you come up with a more balanced thought. It's not to come up with the opposite thought. It's not to go from I'm worthless to I'm worth $100 million. The idea is that when you're depressed, you see the world in a negative light. And it's not a factual or logical light. And so the cognitive part is to say, What's the evidence for what you believe in? What's the evidence against? And chances are, if you come up with a more balanced thought, a thought that's more fair to you, you actually feel better. And then the last bit is the physical sensations. So it's easier to explain for anxiety, but when people are anxious, they, they feel short of breath, for example. And so working on the physical sensations can include slow, deep breathing, uh, like rhythmic breathing. Yeah, usually I recommend an app to help breathe uh, slowly and deeply. And the idea is that when you breathe slowly and deeply, you calm your nerves, your, your autonomic nervous system or your nerves right down. And that actually leads to a decreased arousal state in your body. And that leads you to having less anxiety. And so you can act on the physical sensations, you can act on the behavior, or you can act on the thoughts. And changing any one of those three, ideally multiple of those three, will ultimately affect your mood, whether that's anxiety, depression, or another mood, or shame or anger. Um, and that's really the concept of CBT. We should probably say that this kind of therapy does take a while for it to actually be successful all the way through. Yes. And you have to be fully committed to it, correct? Yes. CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, usually takes 12 to 16 weeks. You know, you would ask your doctor or your counselor you know, for resources, um, your local resources to find CBT, and it requires a uh, commitment, as you said, because you have to do what sometimes we call homework. But the idea is that you don't just do the work 
during the session, during the one hour session that you meet with your counselor or your therapist. But you do you have to do a lot of work in between because, you know, depression affects you every day for weeks to months to years. And so the treatment can't just be one hour, one time a week for 16 weeks. It has to be sort of ongoing, both between the sessions and also after. The idea is um, CBT will teach you skills in the three to four months, and then you continue to practice those skills. And eventually those skills become so automatic for you that you you won't actually have to actively practice anymore. The final thing is there's probably other medications and treatments we can talk about, but I wanted to mention when everything else fails, and uh, you probably see it in movies a lot, the uh, ECT. Right, right. Um, explain what that is, and it's not as bad as what people think it yeah, sounds like, or yeah. looks like in the movies, at least. Before we get to that, maybe let me name a few other things. Sure. Um, you're right. We, we only talked about the SSRIs, or the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, which is one class of antidepressants. There are other ones. So some of them include SNRIs, or serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Again, the idea being it increases your serotonin and your norepinephrine in your brain. Ask your doctor about Pristique. Pristique is a prescription medicine proven to treat depression. Pristique is thought to work by affecting the levels of two chemicals in the brain, serotonin and norepinephrine. And then there are many other ones. Some of them are older. I think what I want to say about that is that if you try one medication and it doesn't work for you because of side effects or it doesn't work for you even at the maximum dose that you can tolerate, there are actually a lot of other medications. So I talked to my doctor. He said adding Abilify to my antidepressant could help with my depression and that some people had symptom improvement as early as one to two weeks. I think that's important to mention because I don't want people to feel it's hopeless that if you've tried one or two or even three that you're, you've run out, out of medications because there's actually a ton of other medications and there are older ones which actually there's evidence that it works better for depression or certain types of depression, but we usually save those um, powerful antidepressants for later on because they do carry more side effects. Call your doctor if your depression worsens or if you have unusual changes in behavior or thoughts of suicide. Antidepressants can increase these in children, teens, and young adults. Elderly dementia patients taking Abilify have an increased risk of death or stroke. Call your doctor if you have high fever, stiff muscles, and confusion to address a possible life-threatening condition, or if you have uncontrollable muscle movements, as these could become permanent. High blood sugar has been reported with Abilify and medicines like it. In some cases, extreme high blood sugar can lead to coma or death. Other risks include decreases in white blood cells, which can be serious, dizziness upon standing, seizures, trouble swallowing, and impaired judgment or motor skills. The treatments we go to right away for depression, the SSRIs and the SNRIs, tend to be first line because they have less side effects. But if they don't work for you, it doesn't mean you're out of options. There's many other options, including many other medications. And again, it doesn't mean medication. I know that there's some people who feel like all doctors want to do is prescribe you medication. I'm certainly not one of those doctors, and many doctors don't agree with that either. You know, depression, because it's multifactorial, means that our treatment has to be flexible. And that includes not only all the things we talked about, but sometimes addressing social determinants of health. So... For example, if people are marginally housed and that's the reason for their depressive symptoms or their depressive episode, then it's about helping them maybe find housing or helping them apply for disability governmental assistance, governmental funding assistance, if financial reasons are the reasons why they are depressed or continues their depression, then we also address those social determinants as well as the psychological and the biological factors that we've already talked about. So 
And then if you do feel like you've tried many medications and a lot of treatments, a lot of non-pharmacological, non-medication treatments, as well as medication treatments, and you feel like you're still quite depressed and it's really affecting your quality of life, then there are what we call brain stimulation options or treatment options. And uh, that does include ECT, which I'll save for last. It also includes newer treatments like repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation or RTMS, which is using magnets to stimulate your brain. The idea is that certain parts of your brain are functioning too much. So certain frontal parts of your brain might be ruminating or thinking about negative memories or negative thoughts about yourself. Like I'm worthless, 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 I'm worthless. And it's hard to get unstuck from that. And so the idea is that by stimulating parts of that brain that's too active, you can actually calm those parts down. Sort of like jumpstart that region? Exactly. And then other parts which are too low, you can jumpstart it. So exactly the idea is that it it jumpstarts parts of your brain that are either overactive or underactive and so you can do that by magnets you can do that with other more newer brain stimulation techniques which are actually not available yet because they're still under research but there's a lot of different types they go from having a machine that you can buy for yourself and you just wear it as like a ring around your head all the way up to neurosurgery where they put an electrode directly into your brain, uh, which some of you may have heard about for Parkinson's, for example. So we call it deep, deep brain stimulation. It go, so it ranges from like wearing a battery pack around your head all the way up to actually going through neurosurgery and putting an electrode in your brain. But some of those treatment options are not available. And things like deep brain stimulation are obviously reserved for people who have exhausted most of their other options and feel like this is the only option that's left and viable for them. A lot of research is still being done, and so certainly I would not recommend that as a first-line option at all. But I think for me, one of the important things of doing a podcast with you today is to make sure people understand that there's a lot of options for treating depression and not to limit themselves to one or the other or feel like, if they've tried five things, that that's the end of the line for them. I think I want to make sure that people feel hopeful. So the last thing I want to talk about is electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. Sometimes people call it like shock therapy or, or electroshock therapy. There's so many things I could say about ECT. I think what's important to say... Whenever someone says ECT, all you think about is like the, the scene from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. Yeah. May I have my cigarettes, please, Miss Ratched? Forget the cigarettes, Cheswick. Cigarettes are not important. Sit down, will you? Christ's sake. I actually haven't watched that movie. It's a classic movie, I understand. I think it's um, that movie, based on what I've heard, doesn't help with the stigma of ECT or psychiatric illness. In 1936, the Italian Ugo Cerletti found that the otherwise lethal effect of electricity could be turned to therapeutic advantage if the current was passed across the head so that the heart was not affected. After two years of extensive animal experiments, Cerletti administered electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, to the first human subject. What can I say about ECT? Honestly, 
ECT is a very good treatment for people who have tried medications and all those other types of therapy that we've talked about and still hasn't sort of gotten better. Um, Personally, I think about ECT for people who have a type of depression that's maybe more biological, by which I mean their brain is changed in some fundamental way where the medication and therapy, exercise and other treatments aren't enough for that brain. Or if the other treatments can't be tolerated or are contraindicated, um, then then you think about ECT. It's actually, I would actually say it's, it's very safe. Um, so, okay, maybe take a step back. The idea is that ECT causes a short seizure in your brain. And it's exactly what you talked about earlier, which is the idea is to jumpstart the brain. And ECT, for people who have what we call treatment-resistant depression or depression that's hard to treat, has a, a successful treatment rate of 50 to 70%, which is significant, right. especially for people who have tried a bunch of other options. And so ECT is effective. ECT is safe. People did used to have obvious seizures which would put their physical body at risk but nowadays it's done under general anesthesia usually and so that risk of breaking a part of your body because of the seizure is no longer a risk um, if you're under general anesthesia you don't feel the pain because you're sedated under anesthesia people do get headaches and some muscle pain afterwards it's actually not uncommon but you can treat that uh, relatively easily with things like Tylenol or Advil after the treatment. The main side effect that people talk about is uh, memory loss. And that is true. Taking a step back again, the treatment for ECT is usually two to three times a week, two to three sessions a week, uh, usually around 12 sessions. If the person gets much better after six sessions, um, then you probably won't need 12, but it's usually a course of 12 sessions, so about a month or six weeks. And each uh, ECT treatment is actually really short. It's in a matter of minutes uh, because they don't let the seizure go longer than that. And so usually within an hour, the whole thing is done. It's a lot of waiting outside and then recovery after in the post-anesthesia recovery room, but the treatment itself is in the matter of minutes. And you get two to three sessions a week um, and usually around 12 sessions or up to 12 sessions. Once you're done the treatment, usually people talk about not remembering the month or two months that they've had the ECT and a bit before and a bit after. Usually that three to six month period is a bit hazy for people. And that is true. And I think it's, it's worth saying explicitly to your listeners, but it doesn't impair the formation of new memories. So once you recover from the ECT, you can still go on to have a productive life uh, after the treatment. Uh, where you can still form new memories, you still remember the memories before that period, so you don't lose those old memories either, and that's the norm for the vast majority of people. Feelings Nothing more than feelings Trying to forget my Feelings of love Teardrops 
I, before we go, I wanted to get some personal takes from you about uh, depression in general. Now, a lot of people still don't understand the concept of depression, and if someone in their family is depressed, it's easy for us to say, you know, just snap out of it. Why don't you just get out of bed? Just go outside. What is depression? It's, you know, you're just in bed, you're just being lazy. What should we say to family members who have somebody who is depressed? Mm -hmm. uh, how can they help them? This question is a great one, and it um, it tugs on my heartstrings a little bit because I think I think part of why I appreciate the work that I get to do and the people that I you know have the privilege of working with is because I, I get to help address stigma, and I think the stigma around mental illness or mental health in general is huge, as I think you're alluding to. People, for some reason think of uh, mental health as you know less important or different than physical health and I I personally don't think there's a difference I always tell uh, my patients about how I think of depression as like diabetes you know there are many different causes of diabetes just as there are many different causes of depression and it's multifactorial meaning it's biological so people are predisposed to diabetes and depression and it's also environmental in the sense that if you have a higher body mass index um, you can be predisposed to diabetes you're more likely to have diabetes just like if you have some of the predisposing factors that we talked about for depression you're more likely to have depression so there's it's biological psycho and social for I think diabetes and depression or at least it's biological and environmental for both and so people who have diabetes, their family members, I think, would rarely, if ever, tell them not to treat their diabetes. Don't inject insulin or don't take metformin for your diabetes. People wouldn't say that. And so I see depression as the same. You know, why would you say not to get treatment for your depression, right? For some people who have uh, pre-diabetes or, or sort of just starting to get diabetes, some people can use just exercise and lifestyle changes to treat the diabetes. Similarly with depression. Just because you have a clinical depression or a major depressive disorder, you don't have to go to medication right away. You can go to exercise, sleep, lifestyle changes. So I really do see depression, diabetes, and other physical and mental illnesses as the same uh, in terms of the seriousness and the treatment options. That's usually what I tell patients and their families because I, I mean it. Also, depending on the person and whether it's appropriate, I talk about how certain cultures, there's more stigma. So I'm Chinese myself, and you know, in the Chinese culture, there is more stigma around mental health and mental illness. So people tell, you know, people are even more prone to say, just get over it. Why are you so lazy? You know, you should just get out of bed. Um, you should have the mental fortitude to get over this thing, which, you know, for someone who has depression, who already has thoughts about being worthless, is not helpful and in fact just further worsens their depressive illness, worsens their desire to be with other people. So they're more avoidant of being with other people and just makes them feel really crappy. So I I try to talk about stigma. I try to do my like diabetes and depression comparison. You know, and I think the stigma around mental illness um, is being addressed slowly but surely. I think people are more and more accepting of it. Certainly in Canada, it's been the case. And there's still more work to do, I think.
Now, finally, do you have some comforting words for someone who you think is suffering from depression? It's important to say you're not alone. As we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, 5% of Canadians in this year will be or have been diagnosed with depression, which is a lot, one in 20, right? So you're certainly not alone. In a lifetime, one in 10 Canadians have, have it, right? Slightly more than one in 10 Canadians, in fact, will have developed depression at some point in their lives. You're not alone, although it feels like you're alone, especially because depression affects the way you think, as we talked about, and so you, you feel like you're alone. You're definitely not alone. It's definitely not your fault, which I think sometimes society can give that message to you, that it's your fault. It's certainly not your fault. I wouldn't blame you if you had uh, any medical illness, so why should people blame you for having a mental illness? Um, the other thing I would say is something I've already said, which is treatment exists. I think the best doctor and the best psychiatrist and the best psychologists, etc., are flexible in their approach. So I think the message that I want to convey to your listeners is that a treatment plan that works for you will exist. I think the important part is to go to your family doctor or any doctor that you have a good relationship with and ask them for resources, ask them for help, tell them that you're suffering. I think the hardest part sometimes for some people is the first step of asking for help. If that seems like too high of a bar because of your symptoms, just tell a friend. Maybe start by just telling one person, a friend or a family member that you trust, ask them for help and, and go from there. And maybe ask them if you feel like you can't get more help than that, maybe ask them to help you get help. I know that there's a lot of stigma and there can be some shame related to getting help. Again, it's absolutely not your fault. And I think even though it's hard, I would really encourage everyone to get help. As we talked about, there are so many treatment options. I want to convey hope other than just saying that it's hopeful. If one doctor or one therapist isn't the right fit for you, so if you go to a doctor who maybe is more dismissive than I would like or just tries to prescribe you a medication if that's not what you want and doesn't offer you resources for CBT or other therapies or other treatment options, then I would find another doctor. It's easier said than done. I appreciate that. But I just want you to know there are options. And once you find the right person to be your advocate and to help guide you through that process, you will get better. I promise. Excellent. Our guest today was Dr. June Lamb. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And finally, thank you to the listeners for joining us today. Till next time, goodbye. Cause I'm on a bender, I'm so high and so dry.